The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning. Welcome to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. My guest today is Mr. David Graff, the CEO of a company called Huddle, which he co-founded with his partners in 2006. Huddle has become the preferred game film solution for all kinds of teams, from the smallest youth organizations to professional franchises on several continents, including North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia. Cuddle currently serves 130,000 active teams and has 450 employees in 13 different countries. David also serves on the board of directors for Nelnet and Assurity Life Insurance and on the management advisory board of the Rake School of Computer Science and Management. He's also a University of Nebraska Foundation trustee and in 2010, he was featured on Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 list, along with his co-founders. David, it's a real privilege to have you on the program. Thanks a lot, Larry. It's great to join you. Let's get right into it. Who is the first person you remember as being a mentor to you? What is I had a lot of great mentors, Larry, over my time, both through you know middle school and high school and into college. But I'd say from a professional standpoint, the first one that jumps out would be a guy named Jim McClurg. Could you spell that uh, last name for me? Yes, yeah, M-C-C-L-U-R-G. Thank you. I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, tell us about Jim. So. Jim was a guy who ran a business here in Lincoln. He'd founded a number of companies um, over the years, but his the most recent one was a pharma services business and pharmaceutical testing. And we connected with him through his wife, who was actually one of the directors at the Rake School, which was the program at the University of Nebraska that me and my two co-founders, Brian Kaiser and John Woods, both attended. And when we were first coming up with the idea for Huddle, we well, what it was we talked with many people in the rake school and Lori had heard about it and told us that one person we should get in touch with was her husband, Jim. And so that's kind of what set off the relationship. And tell us about Jim. What did he do for you? How did you grow through your relationship with Jim? Yeah. So when we first had the idea for huddle, one of the early conversations we had was literally sitting at Jim's kitchen table at his house. When he asked what would prove to be a very poignant question for us moving forward, which was, are you guys looking to build a piece of software or are you looking to build a company? And that really forced me and Brian and John to think about that quite a bit and decide, you know, what was this? Was this really just a tool that we thought could solve a solution for a number of teams that would piece in well with another competitor's software and we'd sell it off to them and make a little bit of money and get on our way with our careers? Or was it something where we saw the opportunity is so big that we really need to get the right structure in place to build a company around it? And we decided on the latter and have never looked back. Are you still in touch with Jim? Yep. So Jim serves now as the chairman of our board of directors. So we built that mentoring relationship over probably would have been the first two, three years together. And eventually we asked him if he'd be willing to join our board in the chairman capacity. He's filled that role ever since it's probably been over five years he's been in that role now and he's been phenomenal to us I mean, he's not only a mentor for me and for my two co-founders brian and john but for a number of people here at huddle he's incredibly willing and it's been a benefit since he's retired from his full-time um, job that he's been able to donate you know provide us with a lot of time i meet with him on a 
usually a weekly basis if both of us are in town, and spend an hour just talking through different issues, keeping him up to date on what the business is going, talking him through some of the challenges we're facing, and just having him respond to some of those prompts and give us ideas of how he might look at a problem a little bit differently. Uh, great. I want to not necessarily go in chronological chronological order, and I understand Jim was your first mentor in terms of your professional life. But talk about a mentor you had when you were in school. Yeah, so a lot of my mentors came either through professors when I was at school or through other connections that we got to leverage through the rake school. So the program that Brian, John, and I were in was called, I mentioned it earlier, it was called the rake school for computer science and management. So it was a program focused on what next generation technology leaders in the world would need to be able to do to succeed in their companies. It was looking at not only what a startup would need, but what a big company like Microsoft, where Jeff Rakes worked at the time, would need. And so through that, we got exposed to a corporate advisory board that they put together. I serve on it now, um, where there were a lot of great mentors in the tech community that would be willing to sit down and donate time to us. And one of those was Jeff Rakes. Tell me about Jeff. Yeah, so Jeff, most recently, he just retired from, he was the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, lives out in Seattle. He's a Nebraska native from Ashland. Prior to joining the Gates Foundation, he was the president of Microsoft Business, so he ran all of their office and server tools, components, so saw an incredible amount of technology from when he, an incredible amount of growth in that space, in that high-tech space, from when he first started up until where Microsoft was when he ultimately retired from that job. And then in his second career with the Gates Foundation, obviously saw a lot of growth and a whole different set of experiences. Jeff and I connected the first time because we're both diehard Nebraska football fans. And I worked during my time in college, I worked for the University of Nebraska and worked directly with the football team. So I think Jeff was always looking for that just extra layer of inside information. But he and I would talk regularly. We would talk about you know, what the next steps were for me, what I was thinking about. And ultimately, um, when the idea came, we talked about Huddle as a business. And he provided some great mentorship on that from the very beginning as well. At what point in your relationship do you did you use in your own mind the term mentor in your relationship with Jeff? Mm-hmm. I probably didn't think about it fully in the mentor way until after college. And Jeff's another one who that relationship has stayed strong. I've known him now for the better part of 15 years. He serves on our board of directors as well, and he's someone who I talk with every week, every other week, on a pretty regular basis about a variety of issues. So I'd say that probably, it probably didn't hit me until we were in our professional careers, so after we started the company, that it occurred to me, you know, we should go out and find some mentors when we already had some great ones, and we were just more able to formalize that relationship. How are you mentoring people in your company? Yes, a little bit internally. I don't think we have formalized that relationship, but yeah, I do quite a bit of mentorship and advising with folks here at Hubble. How do you decide who you'd like to get into that mentoring relationship with as the mentor? What draws you to someone? It's a good question. It's something we talk about with Jim quite a bit, too, as he takes on a mentor role with others on our team. I think one of the biggest things that you're looking for as a mentor, and Jim would say this too, is somebody who wants to be there and wants to listen. I think there's a big difference between somebody who's checking the box and wants to know that they'd be better off with a mentor or they need to have it for some reason, but they don't quite know, you know, they know they should go to the sessions, but they don't know what they should get out of them. And somebody who's actively engaged and sits down with a list of questions in advance respects your time, wants to get the most out of it, and listens and acts upon what you're saying. That doesn't mean they always have to take the advice that you give and take the direct action that you might advise them to do, but it does mean that they're at least thinking through it and making a conscious decision to either follow that advice or to go against it for a valid reason. I think you just gave us a really good list of, of bullet points about how to be a good mentee. Uh, 
And what do you think is the most important element in being a good mentee? I think it is that respect for time. So the way Jim put it, I've heard him tell this story before. You know, the first time he didn't know what was going to come of it, it was some, he was doing a favor for his wife, willing to sit down and meet with these, this group of three guys who wanted to form a company. And it sounded kind of interesting, and he liked sports, so he was willing to do it. He said the reason he kept coming back was because we were, number one, always respectful of his time, and number two, just engaging, willing to listen, and genuinely curious. I think that's a big part of it. If you're respectful of somebody's time, you're willing to work with their schedule, make it work, adjust things if they need to, because if you're looking for a really high-caliber mentor, a lot of them are going to have schedules that can be pretty choppy, and it can involve you know, travel or last-minute meetings coming up. And so respecting that and then getting in there and getting right down to, you know, right down to business. So here's the questions that I want to ask you, and I'm going to take notes. I'm going to be respectful of your thoughts, and if I have follow-up questions, I'll shoot them to you over email. I think those are some of the biggest things. Great. Are there any other mentors that come to mind for you? Yeah, I have quite a few. You know, some of the relationships have great. Just in and out as they as they make sense for where we are at the phase of the business. Another one who stayed with us, stayed with me for a long time now, has been another guy, a guy who's the chairman of a company here in Lincoln, publicly traded company called Melnet. His name is Mike Dunlap. He as is the theme with a lot of mentors that stick with us, stick with me for a while. We end up adding him adding them to our board. So Mike serves on Huddle's board of directors and he's somebody who I'm talking with multiple times a week um, as issues come up and I want to seek his advice as he grew that company from essentially three people to over 4,000 people down to sub 2,000 and back up again to around 3,000. He's gone through just an incredible amount of things and has seen a lot in his time there. One of the phrases Mike uses a lot that sticks with me that I share with our team is when we're having those discussions, a goal for him and a goal for Nelman is to never pay the same tuition twice. And so a goal for him with me is to never have to make me pay for the tuition that he's already paid for. So how he can help me recognize those issues that he's gone through before and possibly the mistakes on or had lessons that he learned and how we can apply those to huddle. You're on his board of directors as well. Is that correct? I am. Yep. So he was served on our board for a couple of years and then I had gotten close with him and the team and knew them pretty well, had a lot of respect for their business and, I think I'm more in the technology space. I joined the board a couple of years ago. That's great. What role do you play on that board? If so, I'm definitely the most tech-focused member of that board. So it's a phenomenal board that he's pulled together, um, but not a lot in the software space, which now that is becoming increasingly involved in. And so that's kind of the role that I play. That's great. I want you to think about these three gentlemen that you've brought up so far. Are, and you've, you've talked about Mike. There's a quotation from him, as you said, never pay the same tuition twice. Can you think of quotations from Jim or Jeff that have these nuggets of wisdom that you've passed along to other people that you're mentoring? Boy, I don't know how much time we have, Larry, but I could probably go, go on for a long time. We've got uh, plenty Jim of time. <laughs> Jim is full of great uh, nuggets and quotes. So I know one of the phrases he'll use a lot that we say a lot internally is if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. It really fits <laughs> in with one of our core values we have here at Huddle, which is the core value is dominate. So if you're going to do something, make sure that you're in a position to dominate at it. You know, we don't want to go into some business where we're kind of halfway in there where we're partially delivering a successful solution. If we're going to invest the time and the resources, we're going to invest enough that we go all the way to make sure it's successful. And so that's one that I use all the time around here. And I hear a lot of people quote is if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. One of the things that I take away from Jeff is just his way of analyzing the situation and presenting it back. And he'll share the story that, one of the people he learned it from was uh, the former, at the time, the guy was the manager of the Mariners. He went on to manage the Cubs after that, but guy named Lou Pinella. And he said whenever he asked Lou a question, Lou would always break it down as, well, Jeff, let me think about that. There were three things, and he'd list out what those three things were, or four things, or two things. And just really having that structured way of presenting yourself 
and of when you get asked a question, taking a minute to collect your thoughts, think through it, and then come back with a really structured set of information that your team can follow is really good. So I, I find myself employing that quite a bit. That's great. How would you distinguish between a mentorship type of relationship and other relationships you may have where you may have other advisors, but you're not calling them mentors. Maybe they're a coach, maybe they're something else. What do you think distinguishes something and makes it a mentoring relationship versus just an advisor or a coach? Mm -hmm. So an advisor relationship, I think of more as a far more focused relationship. Like if I'm looking for advice on particularly on a particular financial issue that we're facing as a company. Like, I want advice on how to best structure our global operations so that we're the most efficient from a tax structure. Like, those are the kind of things that I think of going to people for advice. When I think mentorship, I think far more broadly. I think of somebody that I'm going to go to with my good stories and my bad. You know, the stuff that excites me and the stuff that is the gut punches that you face on a, you know, regular basis in your role and it's somebody that you fully trust and you can be completely transparent with. It's kind of a level jump in my eyes over just an advisor relationship. Excellent. Thank you very much. We're about to take a brief break for a commercial. And when we come back, we're going to hear about other mentors that David has had in his life and talk about some other issues such as formal mentoring versus informal mentoring. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. We're back. I'm speaking with David Graff, the CEO of Huddle. He's been telling us about some very important mentoring relationships he's had in his life. And I want to move on to get your thoughts, David, about establishing a formal mentoring program in an organization like yours. What do you think about that? Yeah, Larry, I think it can be incredibly valuable. I think we haven't done the best job of establishing a formal relationship here, but a few things that we've thought about are, number one, we have a program called the Huddle Management Training Program, where we pull in leaders that have varying level of experiences. So it doesn't have to be a leader that manages people, but they can be a leader of a different segment of our business where they don't directly manage. And we'll have them talk with that group about how they think about leadership or any variety of topics they want to cover and then leave a lot of time for questions and answers. And I think that through that management training program, a lot of those mentor-mentee connections can happen. So it's people who are more experienced leaders or have been here for a little while and those who are young are just getting into their leadership roles. And it's kind of a great place to connect mentor-mentees there. Another thing we do is called management forums, where we'll have, instead of a select class like that management training program, is we'll have more just open forums for folks interested in management or interested in advancing themselves in their career. 
and we'll do management mixers where anybody who wants to join in on that, who's managing people here or just taking on management, will get assigned somebody else or a group of three, and they'll just have a budget to go out and grab a few drinks at the bar, grab dinner together, and grab a smoothie and grab a coffee, just talk through the different issues they're facing and get that more kind of peer mentoring relationship. So those are two of the ways we've tried. I think there's probably a lot of other better ways that are out there, but we're just getting started on that program. Advice for our listeners. A question I frequently get is how do I find a mentor? What are your thoughts on that? I think the way that I'd go about it is have a really good idea of what you're looking for from a mentor. So what kind of experiences do you want that person to have had? What are the issues that you're working through that you want advice and mentorship on? And then I go through and try to find, how can I map that? Like, what are my needs? Is If I'm starting, like I was, starting a technology company. Okay, folks who have good technology backgrounds, who have taken companies and grown them significantly, like we had hoped and planned to grow Huddle. Like, who are the folks that I can identify that could map directly to that, who have direct experiences that relate? And then I think the next step really is reaching out and being respectful of their time and asking, you know, hey, give me 30 minutes. I'd love to pick your mind on this. And then if you go in there and you take notes and you're attentive, I think that's the important first step in building that mentor relationship. You can't go into that being clear with the person, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. I don't think... There's a lot of people that will take a cold request um, from somebody to become their mentor because that is a time commitment and a significant time commitment on both sides. I think it's better to approach it as, hey, I'd love to just pick your mind, hear your thoughts on some things. Would you be available? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And if you can get somebody to commit that 30 minutes and you're in there and you're, like I said, attentive, um, respectful, there's a decent chance that person's going to be willing to come back and spend 45 minutes with you again in a few weeks or in a month or 60 minutes if you have some longer issue you want to go through. I think you kind of just take it one step at a time. And over time, if you get a few minutes into it and you're really liking the advice that you're getting, the mentorship that you're receiving, I think that's the time that you consider formalizing that relationship. Okay, great. Those are terrific insights. So let's talk about some of the mentoring relationships you're in as the mentor. Do you have any of those relationships outside of Huddle? Not at this time. I occasionally will meet for one-off coffees with folks, but yeah, right now I've been very focused within the team. How many people would you say you're mentoring at this point in time within Huddle? Actively, probably a half dozen. And as you say, that's a very significant commitment of time on your behalf for half a dozen people because they each need time, right? Exactly. And so that's, yeah, you've got to carefully choose where you want to spend that time. That's where I've chosen to keep it internal at Huddle today. And do you see mentoring relationships as evolving over time? Absolutely. I think there are mentoring relationships where somebody might be the exact right fit for you for mentorship at the point in your career that you're at. And after that, people change, you know, both sides could be the mentee or the mentor that changes. They might change professions. They might change where their focus is, or one just might be an advancing in a different way that takes them a totally different direction where that mentor mentee relationship no longer makes sense. So yeah, I'd fully expect it over someone's life to be pretty regular for mentors to come on and come off. And I think you're incredibly lucky if you find someone who sticks with you and who that relationship makes sense for both sides and for a long duration. Would you say that the mentor experiences growth in this relationship as well as the mentee? Absolutely. And I think that's a big benefit for me of, it can be very interesting. And I get this through a mentor-mentee relationship is not too different from a board relationship, in my opinion. So I get to see this at the board level through my work with Melmet and Charity. But it's, it can be refreshing to just hear other people's challenges and to help them think through it and just have your your mind open in somewhat of a different way. 
So when you're just working through the same set of issues, and they're really saying, you know, focused in the exact same areas for a long time, even if they're even if they're somewhat diverse, but you still feel like they're focused on one set of issues. When you can take a step back and look at some of the questions or issues that other people are facing and help them think through it. A lot of times, some of the advice that you're giving out is the exact advice that you need to be giving yourself. <laughs> so it can cause a few moments of self-reflection. Has a mentee ever challenged you uh, in a way that not only caused you to give advice that you think, oh my gosh, I should be taking this advice, but helped you see a situation from a completely different perspective? Oh, all the time. All the time. That's what I was talking about. I mean, I think just the other day I was presented to our management training program class. I mentioned it earlier. And it was just an open Q&A with the 10 people that we have in that class right now. And some of the questions they were asking me about what makes a good manager, how you deal with folks who aren't performing to their full, you know, your full expectations or their full potential. What are some of the issues you you need to think through, and as I was thinking through some of the issues I'm facing right now with some people that I directly manage, I was like, ah, some of the stuff I'm talking about makes a lot of sense, or some of the questions they were asking were really easy for me to reflect it back upon the work and some of the relationships that I have right now. Yeah, some of these things I have found are easy to talk about in the classroom, but it's much harder to live them out when you actually have to apply some of those principles. Yeah, I think that can be totally right. I think you need to, that's where you need to hold yourself quite a bit. You're really accountable to uh, take your own advice and do a little, uh, look yourself in the mirror and say, that makes a lot of sense. What I'm saying or the questions that they're asking, that makes a lot of sense. I really should be executing on that on my own. Terrific. What is it you think makes a good manager? So somebody asks you this in, one of these settings, what's your response? From your point of view, what makes a good manager? Yeah, I think adaptability is a big part of it. I think that was one of the first things that I learned in my young management career was that it's very rare to find two people that want to be managed in the same way. And if you're gonna get the most out of your team, you need to be very conscious, conscious in deciding how you're going to adapt to meet the way that they want to be managed and where they're going to have to adapt to the way that you manage. I think it is a trade-off on each side. I think there are certain places where if somebody needs more direction, um, wants to meet more regularly, wants to talk through issues, I think that for a time, you you need to, as a manager, adjust your schedule and, and take that on. I think there's a time where you need to say, hey, I'm not the right person. I don't necessarily have the amount of time it takes to manage you if we want this kind of level of micromanagement. So then we have to look at how you can grow that person into not needing to be so micromanaged um, or how you can work with them and get them a better manager for them that fits what they're looking for. So I think adaptability is one of the big ones. I think being present with them when you are updating and when you are talking when they have an issue is key. I think too often... Managers can go into these meetings distracted and in a hurry to get them done. And they really just need to stop, you know, listen, and really help somebody work through the issues they're facing. So I'd say that's two of the biggest ones is being adaptable and being present. In terms of being present, in your organization, what's the culture regarding having your phone out and looking at texts that might come in or something of the sort while you're having these kinds of interactions. What's the culture at Huddle? You know, we, I do a lot of meetings with members of our sales and support team. So it's one where we're, it's not irregular for us to get interrupted by a sales call from a client or a support call from a client. So we don't have a culture where it's no devices in meetings. People can use devices as they want to. A lot of people will be sitting on laptops taking notes but the expectation is that if you're in that meeting and something is discussed, you're, if you have an issue with it, you're going to raise it in that meeting um, or else you're essentially agreeing to do it. So you've got to be present and listening to that degree. Great. Is there anything else on the list that jumps out at you? I, adaptability and being present are the two most important. Anything else that you would give advice for for people about how to be a good manager? 
Yeah, I think the second part of being present is being there when they need you. So some of the best managers here at home, I think one of the things that they do a lot is walk around and get in front of their team. Or if they're managing somebody remotely, like if they're one of our other offices managing someone here in Lincoln or they're in any one of our offices managing somebody who's remote, it's frequent check-ins. So just dropping by their desk, shooting them a quick message. We use Slack as our internal communication tool. You know, so they shoot them a quick message on Slack. Just ask them how their day is going. You know, if they need anything, how they can help out. And I think that just goes so far. It goes a very long way for people um, in helping them understand that as a manager, you want to be there. You care for the, You care for them. You want to make sure that they're if they need any help. They've got the right person to reach out to. How do you hold people accountable? You talked about somebody wasn't really performing expectations. In your organization, how do you hold people accountable? Yeah, so we operate with a lot of independence and freedom here, but we also have very strong expectations for our team. So we expect people to commit to timelines and to deliver on those timelines. We commit to, if it's a salesperson, they're gonna to commit to what they're gonna sell and the phone calls they're gonna make and how that whole process goes down. If they don't, if they don't make it, um, it's going to be a conversation with their leader, with their manager of why not, what can we adjust, how can we improve this? And frequently missing deadlines or not meeting goals isn't a recipe for you know, having a good long-term future here at Huddle. So we have been, I think, to the appropriate degree, um, you know, we've proved our team when it was necessary. If somebody wasn't working out or they just weren't able to operate in the environment that we like to function, then we're not afraid to you know, move on and put them in a situation that's honestly better for them, you know, finding a new company, and it's better for us. Does this accountability get reflected in the mentoring relationships? I think it does in a, in a slightly different way than it manifests I mean, I think a mentoring relationship will absolutely come to an end, just like an employment term could come to an end. If that mentee is not being you know, respectful of that person, of the mentor's time and of their advice. I think that if I was mentoring someone who's frequently missing meetings, not showing up, or when they do show up, they're not present. You know, like you were asking earlier, they're sitting on their phone the entire time. They're not showing that they want to be there and that they're genuinely interested in what I have to say. That'd be a quick way to, for me to, you know, next time that person reaches out, I'm probably going to say, ah, you know, sorry, my schedule won't really allow it at this point in time. Or, ah, I, I don't feel like I was giving you what you needed last time. I think it might be time to look for somebody else who can help you in a better way. I hear that. I want to get started on this. And in a minute or so, we're going to break for a commercial, but I want to get started on this question, which is, do you think millennials have different needs and expectations for a mentoring relationship than other uh, generations, say, of older, older uh, employees? That's a good question. I suppose just by nature of their comfort with different means of communication would probably be a little bit different. So it wouldn't be irregular for me to just shoot a quick text message asking for advice to some of the folks that I am in a mentor-mentee relationship with. And others, I know it's going to be better to make a phone call. Um, I think there's just different ways of different folks, and I don't think it's necessarily purely due to age, but it can also be due to just overall comfort with technology or how they prefer to communicate. I think that a mentee needs to be respectful of what their mentor's preferred path is. So that's that adjustment thing, again, to individual preferences. Exactly, that adaptability. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask David to reflect on the differences, if any, between leadership and management. So let's take a brief break and we'll be back with David Graff.
Change your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter, and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. We're back with David Graff, CEO of Huddle. David, I'm interested to learn about how you think about the differences between leadership and management. You bet, Larry. So this is what we spend a lot of time thinking through here at Huddle. Because in our opinion, a view I share with a lot of people here, leader doesn't mean you have to be a great manager. We have phenomenal leaders on the technical front. We have phenomenal leaders who are just natural born leaders who naturally rally people who have zero interest in managing other people on their team. So we really try to differentiate between those two roles here. So we have a leadership track that's focused on growing in your skills and growing in your ability to help those around you because I think those are great traits of a good leader. Then we have another track that's focused on management. That no doubt leadership is a component of it, but it's more about the direct, you know, leadership and direct people management side of things. And so we really try to distinguish those two. We try to make sure they're parallel paths too. I think there's a lot of incredibly smart, incredibly talented people who just have no desire to go down the path of managing others. I think it is a fairly unique skill that some people have or desire to um, build and other people just don't want to. And that's great. I think there's a great place for those that don't want to as well. So that's why we try to keep two parallel paths with you know, opportunities to reach very high levels here at the company for both. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think you see that in sports a lot, right? People want to be the best player they can be, but they don't necessarily aspire to be the manager of the team. Do you see that? Yeah, I think you're Yep, I think you're spot on. I mean, I think there's a great place here for phenomenal individual contributors at their role who really want to master their craft and who aren't who aren't hesitant to lead and mentor other people from a you know individual contributor skill set. And there are those who want to sit down and who want to spend the time and become great at being a manager and who want to manage other people. I think it is two very different skill sets. Um, and I have an immense amount of respect for both. I have uh, an immense amount of appreciation for a CEO who creates a culture that you just described. I think too often in our society, people in the workforce equate growth and progress with getting promoted, and they can wind up in a position that really isn't suited for them. And that can cause a lot of issues for them personally as as well as for the business. What do you think about that in terms of how our society sees progress? Yeah, I think you're spot on, Larry. I think too often people, the marks that they look to achieve in their career involve how many direct reports they have at a given time or how big their scope of influence from a management perspective is. That's just not the way that we see things at Huddle. We'll have on a regular basis, you know, folks who get into the management track and decide it's just not for them. And, you know, for us before, even before we had a 
really good understanding of it and had institutionalized this concept of there being other ways to be a leader here at Huddle outside of just management before I'm afraid we would have lost them at that point in time. They wouldn't have liked it, but they still would have felt like they wouldn't have liked managing people, but they still would have felt like the only way to progress in their career was to continue to grow the number of direct reports and grow their management responsibilities. And I think it was a welcome shift that honestly, going back to it, came from a great mentor. You know, Jim McClurg was the one who pushed that with us right away. He, it was very in line with the thinking that Brian, John, and I had, but he was one of the quickest ones to tell us, you know, looking back on his days, like I mentioned in the pharmaceutical industry, of how they would think about tech fellows and how they would really embrace that role for them of giving somebody who's a great scientist a chance to continue to progress in their career as a phenomenal scientist and not worry about trying to become a great manager along the way. I just, I just love that. I, I, I have to tell you, I just love that. My next question, since you are filming sports teams and you and your employees are, are inevitably developing relationships with coaches and managers of teams, do you learn things from interacting with those people? A ton. Absolutely, Larry. So that is one of the benefits of working with coaches and athletes. You know, a coach-athlete relationship is what is a lot of the place for a lot of people at Huddle and a lot of people in the world, honestly, the first mentor-mentee relationship they had. When they were growing up, you know, playing t-ball or playing soccer or flag football and tackle football, whatever it might have been, volleyball, the, really the first mentor they had was that first coach. And I think that's what built up that immense amount of respect for the mentor-mentee relationship and ultimately for the coach-athlete relationship with Brian, John, and I. So as we've gone through that, we've seen some coaches who are phenomenal mentors along the way, like you said. And it's not only those at the top, and we've benefited from we have exposure to the very top end. We've got all 20 English Premier League teams that use Huddle. We've got 29 of the 30 NBA teams that use Huddle. We have a number of NFL teams, NHL teams. And there are a lot of great coaches that have reached the pinnacle of their game. But there are a lot of incredible coaches also who coach in the smaller college or in the high school space or even in the youth space who are filling that role too. Some of the folks that all focus more on the top end just because those are probably some of the names that listeners will be more familiar with, but some ones that stand out to me, I think here at University of Nebraska, we've got a phenomenal one right now in Mike Riley. I think that the way that he thinks about leading that team, the way that he represents himself in the university is incredible. And we've known Mike for a long time. We knew him when he was first at Oregon State and he used Huddle out there and we've built a great relationship with him since then, especially, and even closer now with him, you know, five minutes from our office. I think that David Shaw, the guy who's the head coach at Stanford is another one of those people that just stands out to me as an incredible um, leader, an incredible mentor for his team, an incredible mentor for the coaches around him. And we've learned a lot from just seeing how you know, Coach Riley and Coach Shaw carry themselves in their team meetings and the way that they deal with the media and the way that they handle issues with student-athletes and with others is really impressive. Mark Helfrich, who's at the University of Oregon, their head football coach, is another one who fits that classification for me. And he does an amazing job with how he works with his staff. Um, you know, a lot of times he's, if you're the head football coach of a big organization, a big college team, an NFL team, even some of the bigger high school teams, you're in a lot of ways just like a, you're essentially the CEO of that organization. And just watching how they work and how they work with their staff and how they think about recognizing successes and how they deal with failures because they have some of the biggest failures that are out there every week. You know, coaches every week get measured by a win or a loss by how their team performs. They've got some of the highest pressure jobs out there. Just watching how they carry themselves is such a, there's so many good lessons, you know, for me and for many others to learn from them. Well, let's explore that a little bit because this does reflect uh, on mentoring. So there has been a failure. And as you say, in that world, you're going to get them. And in anybody's world, you're going to get them. How do you help a team of people work through a failure like that? It's a good question. It's a tough one. I think you need to really think through 
that failure and what led to it? Like, I think that's the biggest question. It's important to not point fingers right away or ever, but instead look at the root causes of where things went wrong. You know, what could have been done to prevent those and how can we get systems in place now to prevent that risk from happening in the future? It's one of the stories that um, I mentioned one of my mentors, Jeff Rakes, earlier in the conversation. It's one of the stories that I've heard him share, and not only with me, but with some of our uh, some of the folks who got through a management training program that he's spoken with. And I'm not going to do the story full justice, but I'll try to summarize it. It's when he was very early on at Microsoft. They made a mistake in a piece of software, and this was back when you, you couldn't just fix it online like you can now. You can't just fix your servers and all of a sudden everything's good. It was back when they were shrink-wrapping and shipping out box software. And I can't remember what the particular error was, but essentially they had to, it was so, it was such an issue that they had to do a recall. And it might have cost them 200000 it might have been $2 million. I can't remember what the exact figure was at the time. But the important takeaway was when you had to go in there and explain that to Bill Gates, you know, the CEO of Microsoft at the time. Bill just kind of sat there and, and listened, reflected, and ultimately said, well, you know, today you lost us $2 million. Let's hope tomorrow's a better day. I think that's a really good lesson to take away from these. I mean, people are going to make mistakes. If you're trying your hardest and trying to move quickly and really trying to change things and innovate at a high rate, there's going to be mistakes that happen along the way. The key is that you take lessons from those that you don't. To reflect on what Mike's told me many times, you don't pay that same tuition twice. So it's how can you take that mistake and how can you learn from it? What can you build from it? And how can you institutionalize you know, systems to prevent those kind of mistakes from happening again? And how do you distinguish between a time when you should do what you just described and a time where there should be more accountability in terms of some sort of consequences for the person? So to be clear, everything that I'm saying shouldn't remove accountability. I mean, there should be taken a real look at what happened. But I guess consequences would be a whole different term in my opinion. I mean, a consequence can be just, the consequence that I'd want to happen from a mistake like that would be an important lesson and good knowledge for how we move forward. So a good retrospective, you know, a good step back on what happened, how can we correct it? Like those are the things that I think are key. If a consequence is, boy, somebody's got to, heads are going to have to roll over this mistake, or we've got to fire somebody. Somebody's got to fall on the sword for this. And I think, I think something's gone, you know, in a really bad direction. So that's how I think about it. I wouldn't, I think less about consequences, but and more about the learning opportunity that can come from any one of those mistakes. I would predict that a culture where that particular stance permeates the culture does a lot to reduce fear. Yeah, I think it's, it's necessary if you're going to be the kind of company that wants to innovate, that wants to take risks. You've got to have a culture where risks are embraced, where mistakes are embraced. And it's not, you know, nobody's getting hung on the mistake that they made. You know, if they're, the important takeaway is that they're learning from that and iterating and getting better from it. You know, it's not to say if you've got somebody who's making the same mistake multiple times and they're not taking that important step of learning from it and to figure out ways to prevent it, then there's probably, you know, there probably is a termination that needs to be had. But if people are using those mistakes the right way as learning opportunities, then I think you've got to embrace them. The lack of fear would encourage somebody to take some risks, knowing that uh, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a learning experience out of it. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, Taking the appropriate risks, I guess maybe I should say. <laughs> you don't want somebody just firing off and doing something stupid, but if they're taking the risk with the, with the proper intent, you know, of they think it's going to be good for the customers, it's going to be good for the company, it's going to be good for us as a team, then you don't want to discourage that in any fashion. That's great. As we come toward the end of our conversation today, what can you tell us? about the future of Huddle. 
I know there are things that it's not appropriate for you to share, but what can you share about the future of Huddle? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look out to, we really call, we focus around the year 2025 and what can Huddle be? What can we all, what can we be as a company? What can all of us be as individuals? The big phrase that we use a lot around here is we want to capture and bring value to every moment in sports. And so what that means is we have to look across sport, across geographies, and across levels. Anywhere where there's athletes and coaches interacting or athletes working to get better at their sport, we want to have a presence there and be right alongside them, helping them along the way. And so that's the biggest focus of us right now. So as we expand, as we look at acquisitions, as we grow globally, as we grow across sports, as we grow up in the elite space and down at the grassroots space, that's what's the biggest driving factor for us. Excellent. Is there any final thought about mentoring or managing people or leadership that you'd like to leave our listeners with? The final thing I'd say, Larry, is just how invaluable having incredible mentors has been for me and what an important process I think it is. You know, whenever I speak with someone who wants to start a company, the first thing I say is get out there and learn from other people. Start putting your idea out there and having other people poke holes in it. Just get a lot of advice. It's, I think the biggest mistake people can make is assume that they have all the answers. I assume I have none of the answers. <laughs> and I've always <laughs> an incredible amount to learn from everybody else. I know there are I'm very rarely do I find myself the smartest person in the room, and if I am, it's probably not a room that I want to be in. So surround yourself with people smarter than you and listen to them, reflect on what they're saying, and, and act. David, thank you very much. This has been a, an extremely interesting and valuable conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us this week for Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Please join Larry again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific for another edition of the program on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.